Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Ear Read This. I'm Ash, your host, and following on from yesterday's episode on a birthday present, today I am once again joined by Ailish Mulholland to talk a little more about Sylvia Plath. If you haven't yet listened to yesterday's show, I inevitably counsel you to do so, as we refer back to a lot of subjects we discussed there, as well as make reference to certain books like Gail Crowther's wonderful Three Martini Afternoons at the Ritz. Today, I wanted to ask Ailish more about her podcast, Plath & Co., which you can find linked in the episode description box below, as well as talk some more about Plath's voice, her range, and her experiences with the supernatural. We also return to the subject of literary archives, and I started by asking Ailish whether or not she thought there was another couple in literature who had amassed anything like the archival material left by Plath and Hughes. Yeah, I, I think... I think in terms of in terms of literary archives, it's it's hard to think of one that is so vast and so detailed. Um, whenever the first volume of the letters came out, um, I remember reading. I've got newspaper clippings and everything of them floating around somewhere. But I remember a plaf in a letter saying, "Darling, keep your letters because one day when we were old, they will ask for them." It's almost this idea that she was aware that. There could be a request for documentation at some stage. And on top of that, you know, Plath was very well aware of not only her own ability, but that of Hughes, you know, in mm. letters to her mother written in the winter of 1962-63, she talks about how she is writing these poems that will make my name. It's almost always this awareness or foresight of, of the need to record everything. But then again, that was her nature. She is so very meticulous, even if you were are to even look at extracts from calendars that she owned, checkbooks, uh, everything is accounted for in there. Even having spoken to Amanda Golden, you know, she talks about even down to Plath's notebooks when she analyzes things in um, for classes, the, the neatness and organization is there. It's kind of hard to ignore and I suppose when we try to compare archives, I suppose that's sort of the that's sort of the beauty of it is that whilst we have so much, there is also so much that is unknown, um, particularly due to as we discussed before the issues of censorship. But I can't, off the top of my head, think of of any other great couples. Can maybe say Leonard and Virginia Woolf at a push, or yeah. perhaps Dorothy and William Wordsworth. If we're, if we're thinking of iconic literary couples, <laughs> but in terms of archive, I don't really think there is one like Plath and Hughes that is split up over so many places and universities. Have you ever heard about the German dictionary that's held in the archives that belonged to Plath? It's been stabbed. It was given to the archive and it was stabbed. It was someone had taken, presumably Plath had taken a knife to it and stabbed through the cover of it. There's a poem by Plath, Burning of the Letters, where she says, I made a fire being tired of essentially uh, Hughes cheating on her. Um, and she actually burnt all of his manuscripts that were left at Court Green. And more importantly, she also burnt her novel, Falcon Yard, um, which was supposed to be a follow-up to The Bell Jar. She burnt that as well. So this idea of, I suppose, destroying books or manuscripts isn't necessarily uh, uncommon. Um, whenever they were living in Chalcot Square in London, um, she actually uh, ripped up Ted's uh, folios of Shakespeare <laughs> um, because she got mad at him one day. Um, so I suppose that idea of destruction 
and uh, destroying works and archival materials are um, not uncommon where Plath is concerned. And then we have the oft contested issue of Hughes burning her last journal. I take that idea of like burning that for journal, journal to me is such a huge act of censorship because yes, I can understand from his perspective, he clearly didn't want his children to, to read it. But then again, Frida Hughes remarks that she didn't even know that her mother Plath was a writer until she was a teenager when someone said, oh yeah, your mum wrote the bell jar and like Hughes had never told her that, which I, wow. which I find quite interesting. I suppose it's, I suppose it's a mixture of that idea of waiting until children or individuals are at an appropriate age to understand stuff. But then again, Frida Hughes talks about how her mother's legacy in her writing helped pay for her education and stuff. So maybe there is some form of reciprocity in that, but mm. it's a very loaded subject. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, now I'd never heard of I've never heard of the German dictionary. I loved the the story that Gail told of Anne Sexton's uh, Anne Sexton's address book, still smelling of cigarettes. I can't <laughs> yeah. imagine how that is so spooky. I know. Um, it, it's really interesting you mentioned smells because olfactory sense is something I find really interesting. Off the back of my English degree, um, I'm currently in the midst of writing an article for Penn State University on Elizabeth Bishop and food studies. And one of the oh, things wow. I was looking at was smell and scent and what, and what that actually does to the memory. And Mary Douglas writes really exclusively about it, but Hughes and birthday letters actually mentions going to view Plath's corpse in the mortuary after she died. And he talks about how she smells bitter like she she smells and he he refers to it almost as like animal-esque but that she smells of apples and I always find that fascinating I, I, I really often sometimes do wonder what he means by that and that idea of the scent of apples or yeah yeah it's, 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 it's interesting yeah really hard to imagine that like what does what does a dead body smell like <laughs> yes exactly yeah mm. and, and one, <laughs> one that died that way as well how, how do you pick up apples yeah somehow along that yeah line? yeah it's um Hughes is very much into the occult and shamanism as we will discuss further on um but it's probably some form of I suppose corporal understanding of the body um and if you yeah. want to know more about that read Gaudet <laughs> which I discussed yes. in an episode that 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 is just a really mad book of poetry but yeah <laughs> Well, should we um should we leave it there for a birthday present? Yes, I think so. Yes. Thank you so much. That that was absolutely fascinating. I I will never forget that your description of the veiled like like a veiled sort of death passing by mm -hmm. her side and <laughs> coming back another birthday. That was just brilliant. Thank you. Um, yeah. Can I start by asking you the ultimate boilerplate question and uh, ask you when did you first become um, a fan of Plath? Well, Plath for me is, we go back a long way. Um, so I first encountered Plath when I was about 16, 17 and studying for my uh, university exams. And Plath was compulsory, much to my delight, on the uh, specification. So we had to study her poems and I was aware of Plath previously. I'd read The Bell Jar over the summer and I'd, I had a copy of Ariel. So this was sort of 
both known and unknown territory for me. Um, so it took the nature of analyzing all of the poems in Ariel. But on top of that, I suppose, being in a very religious school, a uh, very Catholic school, English for me presented a form of freedom almost to the outside world to sort of look beyond the confines of what I was being educated in, which was a very uh, <laughs> judo-Christian ethos, and look mm. outside of that. And Plath was one of the, if not the poets that helped me understand that. Within her work, I find not only radical ideas, but also creative and expressive freedom, especially in poems where she talks about, you know, common themes such as motherhood, feminism, liberation, identity. All of those very much resonated with me at a time when I suppose I was tentatively making steps for leaving teenage angst behind and coming into some form mm -hmm. of adulthood and her work always really resonated with me and knowing her biography like it almost gave me I suppose a boost to strive for what it was that I wanted and on top of that my my love affair shall we say has has remained since an awful lot of people I think sometimes have this stereotypical idea that teenage girls grow out of class I'm the exact opposite of that I haven't I haven't grown out. I think I've grown inwards more like a great tree getting more roots mm. and more anchorage as I can find to support my development and understanding of Plath. Um, she was and always will be hopefully a firm favourite and I don't, I don't anticipate her going away anytime soon. No. <laughs> Too right. <laughs> <laughs> Just like a plaf for it's like instead of a man for all seasons, a plaf for all seasons. I a plaf very for all appropriate. Seasons, yeah. <laughs> I think she is as well. I think I, reading her poetry almost at, at random recently, just just to try and jump mm. jump around in the in the collected poems. The the range is so Varied. um mm -hmm. immense. Yeah, exactly. It, it's definitely. Not as we were saying about in reference to a birthday present, the idea that she only writes about death and she has this one, one subject. Yeah, is... yeah, she's 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 definitely not a one trick pony by any means. Definitely she not, no. she writes so many varied poems. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to even look at her complete collection of poems, but you know even mm. the stuff she writes in juvenilia. You know she writes about love. She writes about identity. She even um recently had given a talk there for the Plath Society recently a couple of uh, months ago where I think Poppies in October is actually a poem about menstruation and breastfeeding you know there there's so there's so many varied and interesting topics within her work that to even just pick one at random you get a multitude of themes that are really exciting and varied um she can jump from topic to topic you know I think there's there's a really famous one you know of um of mad girls love song where that idea you know I dreamed you up inside my head it re really mm. does I suppose can speak to anyone that's ever had an infatuation <laughs> you know yes. those yeah. those those ideas and experiences of life that we think are often quite exclusive to us or actually can be given some form of universality for Work. Um, so 
how did you get started on the Plath & Co yeah. podcast? Um, well, that, that story is actually quite interesting. I was coming to the end of my degree. It was a pandemic. So naturally everything mm. was just up in the air and crazy. And I think there was a part of me that uh, didn't necessarily want to leave the enjoyment that I get from having conversations with people about their work and their interests behind and it was actually at the insistence of my partner he who bought me my first microphone to record um that this all started and from it it's really just opened up so many avenues you know um I ended up setting up a the Dear Whatman Barn Society of the UK and Ireland as a result from from the person I had my very first episode with to yeah to you know like getting to talk to scholars at like the top of their fields reviewing books it's been really exciting and interesting and there's not a day goes by where I don't regret not doing it it's to me it's not only expanded my understanding of literature but also culture as well the interesting thing that I always find with the thing with the topics that I discuss or the people I discuss with literature encapsulates so much more than just books we have to think about the culture that individuals are writing in we have to think about history we have to think about things like even very much down to even people's clothes as we've just as we discussed earlier on you know all those types of things become so much more richer I suppose when they're interlaced with poetry or creative writing whatever way that takes and that's the beauty of it I, I can only think about off the top of my head a handful of things I've discussed but even thinking about an episode I did with Rachel Dr Rachel Murray about her book The Modernist Exoskeleton which was about modernism and insects and how that influences people influences modernist writing was just fascinating to me because yes I had looked at modernism in terms of climatological theory and the weather but I'd never considered it in terms of insects And it's just constantly, Mm -hmm. I suppose, learning more and more about what it is that I'm passionate about. It's almost a sense of constantly free rolling. You're never going to stop. It always has energy and movement. And that's what that's what really excites me. The idea that the idea that there's still so many more things to discuss with people and share their ideas, because that's the beauty of literature. It's subject to interpretation. The way that you or I look at a poem is not going to be the same for every seven billion or so people in the world that look at it and with that constant innovation and perspective it produces discussions and stories which I'm often sometimes very grateful to be privy to oh there's there's so many wonderful episodes I've been listening to them recently I loved um uh, actually before I asked that I I wanted to ask you do you how, how does it work for you do you come up with your subject and find a guest or do you find a guest first and then it's it's often a little bit of both so sometimes mm. I'll have people approach me and say I'm really ex- I, I like your work would you be interested in discussing x y and z with me or more often than not um it's often me actively seeking out individuals and thinking you know, like, hey, would you want to chat with me about your work it seems really interesting and nine times out of ten people are lovely and say yes of course I want to chat with yeah. you about your work you know it's really it's it's really helpful you know I I have to give credit credit is due um more often than not it's the people saying yes that help um mm. rather than me rather than them approaching me and I'm always immensely uh appreciative of that because 
it's just always about trying to find people to have conversations with and whenever you have the internet involved it's it's quite immense <laughs> I don't yeah. think you, you can ever not find people who may be interested which is quite wonderful so you have a you have a veritable feast instead of a famine <laughs> exactly yeah yeah I I've certainly found that in terms of looking looking people up and mm-hmm. you know hoping like oh I wonder if there'll be someone into this play poem book mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. it is I I really enjoyed the uh episode you did recently on on witchcraft and I know we brought it up a little bit on yeah uh, in in the previous episode but could I could I ask you for a little bit more a background on Plath and the supernatural because yeah. before I read much of the way of Plath biography I always thought it was Hughes that was the one who was one of the couple that was more associated with the occult and yeah. um, all of that kind of thing mm-hmm. and I find mm-hmm. I'm quite wrong <laughs> yeah well I, I i should say as a disclaimer i owe most of my understanding in this to dorta tomas who's a mm. she's doing her phd on platform witchcraft in the university of exeter and she has a really wonderful blog called platform witchcraft if anyone's looking to read up more on this but of course you can ask me about platform supernatural so i suppose that Plath has a very American education when it comes to the supernatural. She's got things such as, you know, the inheritance of Edgar Allan Poe. She's got pilgrims, the Puritans with their huge emphasis on witchcraft um, and Salem. And I suppose that's quite interesting when I look at my understanding of witchcraft. You know, I come from, I'm from Ireland. Our idea of the supernatural is completely different to America you know we're thinking of things such as fairies and fairy forts and the banshee and Mm. you know it's quite interesting I suppose how for us you know that idea of the supernatural is still very much present in our culture you know I can even I can walk out to, to the to the to the countryside near me and you know we can find evidence of fairy forts that farmers won't remove because so and so did that once and they ended up dead or you know burning half or in bushes you don't do that because you can get killed by the fairies a lot of the a lot of the folklore mm. is very much like you're going to end up being killed or having misfortune <laughs> caused by the fairies um so looking at this idea of the supernatural from plath is very interesting because it's different and as you said, we often think Hughes is the one that introduces her to the occult. You know, you've got this uh, entry in their use of the Ouija board when they're living in Boston in July 1958, where Plath says, last night, Ted and I tried Pan for the first time in America. Pan was their this spirit that they sometimes contacted through the Ouija board. We were rested, warm, happy in our work, and the overturned brandy glass responded admirably, oddly often with charming humour. It's sort of, I suppose, it brings about this idea that it's Hughes who's saying, oh, try an Ouija board, try shamanism, try this, that and the other. But I think for her, she already has quite a likeness or dispensation towards magic. Magic mm-hmm. for her is very important. When we look at her juvenilia work, there's always mentions of witches, um, of weird sisters, of fairies, of goblins, very much fairy tale-esque, but in their own way. It's always looking, I suppose, towards magic as a lens for understanding. And I think within her work, the moon is a very important figure in this idea of mysticism and magic. So there's actually one of the first treatments of Plath as a major imaginative artist 
rather than a confessional poet was Judith Kroll's chapters in a mythology. Um, drawing on graves is the white goddess. Kroll showed how Plath's use of the symbol of the moon as both creator and destroyer, as well as rituals of marriage and rebirth unifies her poetry. And also as well, in terms of this area and Plath and the supernatural, there's been some really great work it's about nearly 30 years old, but it's still relevant. Um, Timothy Matra talks about Plath and the occult, and he talks about how um, in a letter just before her marriage in 1956, shows how there's almost this central idea of occultism starts to inform her work when she's with Ted Hughes. So that mm. idea of when Ted and I begin living together, we shall become a team better than Mr. and Mrs. Yates. He being a competent astrologist reading horoscopes and me being a tarot pack reader. And when we have enough money, a crystal gazer. So that idea there, I think of the tarot pack, that idea as I, as I previously mentioned on the podcast episode about fatalism speaks to this idea of prediction and, uh, contemplation that comes with Plath's ideas of beliefs and the supernatural because we know she's against established forms of religion you know she famously says when her father dies to her mother oh I'll never speak to God again but I think within that there's an idea that there is some form of trying to find a pathway towards some form of spirituality even if it's not Christian or otherwise that I think gets us to understand where she's coming from when she talks about things like the supernatural. Do you know if they, the Ouija boards, was that a recurring thing they did or was it? It was, I think in that certain period of their life, it was something that they did. So Pan is the spirit. Um, Plath mentions in her journals, the idea that, you know, Pan's like recommending us lottery numbers and stuff. And Oh, really? Yeah, but it's very, it's not, I don't think they really stick with it for that long. It's, for, for, for me, I think it's something that they dabble in and I use that word, you know, very loosely. It's something I suppose that is definitely, um, I suppose it for a bit of fun. Um, mm. But on top of that as well, you know, the idea of the supernatural, I would say it's more so a belief in magic and spirits um, because, you know, Hughes will cast the, hor- cast the horoscope of Frida whenever she's born and says, you know, oh, she's going to do X, Y, and Z. I suppose it's more so this idea of a belief system. And even then, for Plath, it's not exceptionally concrete. So I suppose for me, I would be thinking more so along the lines of fatalism. It's definitely Ted Hughes is much more driven towards shamanism and the occult Mm. than in comparison to Plath. But it doesn't necessarily mean that she doesn't, that she dislikes that. I just think she has a different form of understanding when it comes to things beyond this realm <laughs> yes yeah um do you have any might be a bit reductive to talk about favorites but do you have any favorite plath biographies there's obviously been quite a few in recent years um, yes so i would say my favorite one at the moment is heather clark's red comet which was mm. uh nominated for the pulitzer um if i remember correctly um that's just wonderful i do have an episode of her discussing that coming out at some stage or oh congratulations yes um that was a really that was a really wonderful interview to talk to her about plath and red comet um i suppose when it comes to plath biography it's often quite a hmm, tricky subject given that in the past we have scholars who you know have had to contend with uh the estate of Sylvia Plath, which included Ted Hughes and his sister. 
And on top of that as well, I suppose it's often it's often quite a fine line to tread as a researcher and as a scholar, but there are some good ones out there. Um, There's one about Asia Weevil called Lovers of Unreason. Um, I would also say Bitter Fame by the late, if I can remember her name, I'm almost certain it's Jane someone. She only died this week, actually, unfortunately. Um, Janet Stevens, that's it. Bitter Fame. Uh, Bitter Fame is quite good. Um, no, sorry, The Silent Woman. Um, I'm thinking of Bitter Fame here because I was just looking for it the other day. Um, Bitter Fame by Anne Stevenson is also a very good one because it actually contains essays from her contemporaries like Dido Merwin and Alwyn Hughes, um, oh, right. which, although are biased, um, are still, I suppose, uh, a useful beginning. And then, of course, um, Carl Rawlinson his work is um, like American Isis is mm. uh, very much a influential work. And on top of that as well, um, the work of Gail Croder and uh, Peter K. Steinberg in terms of biography is influential, um, particularly because they rely a lot on archival materials. And on top of that as well, I would also probably be inclined towards to look at Linda Wagner Martin's essays on Plath and her life. Um, it's an old one, but a good one. And I just realized there, I should have said The Silent Woman by Janet Malcolm, not Anne Stevenson. So it's that idea of the biography of Plath and particularly Anne Stevenson's controversial bitter fame. So it's almost like reading in response to Anne Stevenson, which is interesting in and of itself. But that's just really, I suppose if you ever really want to crash course in Sylvia Plath, I would always say start with the poems or the bell jar, whatever is your preference. Sometimes I think people have a tendency to focus on Ariel as like the gateway entry into Plath when there's her earlier collections of poetry, The Colossus, and also her stories that she wrote for Seventeen magazine when she was younger. They're very interesting, particularly Sunday afternoon at the Mintons. So her collection of short stories, Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams are quite nice if you're just dipping your toe into the waters. <laughs> I, I Also, I, I hadn't planned on asking you this, but I've just been thinking about it recently because I, I read... Um... Uh, a novel about Hughes and Plath and, and was listening to um, I think it was Carl Rodison on his podcast talking about fictional representations of Hughes and Plath and yes. various problems and and complexities involved in that. Do you think there are any any uh, is responsible the right word is uh, maybe interesting is the best way is there, are there any that have that have felt to you um, interesting and yeah um, I would say Kate Moses's wintering is an interesting choice um, because it's, I suppose, some element of biographical understanding concerning Sylvia Plath. Um, I think also there's um, The Last Days of Sylvia Plath. It's a very small book um, written by one of her friends recounting Plath and the, the trauma she was going through. But I suppose when it comes to fictional representations, I think it's important, particularly when we know it's fictional, that people are aware of that. More often than not, when we get instances of embellishment or, you know, I'm thinking here of the film, Sylvia, mm. <laughs> uh, with <laughs> Daniel Craig and Gwyneth Paltrow, um, yeah. that I suppose it, it's hard when you have to recreate people's lives on film. But I think that film is long overdue a remake 
And more mm. importantly, I think also as well, we deserve a remake of The Bell Jar. Um, I think Kirsten, yeah. Kirsten Dunst had the rights to it many, many years ago. And there was one type of film made in 1971. Uh, mm. But yeah, I feel like we're overdue a revival. So if anyone's thinking of that, who's listening to this and they want a consultant, you know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I think I thought I saw something about a mm. series not long ago. Was, yeah, was a, I, I mean... Sort of, sort yeah. of like an HBO series or something. It of would, the Bell Jar. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me, but just speaking to you there about that, it reminds me of... There was a really great play that I went to see once whenever I was in Belfast. It was Sylvia Plath, Your Words Are Just Dust, and it was run by um, the Cathedral Arts Quarter, where it was like mm. a live performance of an interpretation of just Plath, this lady on the stage, just pretending to be her and just talking about her life and it was actually for me one of the most if not the most accurate representation I'd ever seen before so yeah it was really it was a really great opportunity um to just see that being performed and I suppose understanding um possibly her life or her feelings and it also really handled depictions of mental illness in a very sensitive and intelligent way that was actually quite refreshing to see. Um, it wasn't that she was mad. Um, it, it was quite nice, you know, coming off the back of, I suppose, what we sometimes think of Plath being represented in popular culture, which is the horrid uh, oven a fixation. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking here of Vogue Italy, who ran a, a fashion column about how to embody the style of Sylvia Plath with a bright pink gas oven in the middle of it. Yeah, almost as if it was a necessary purchase. Um, so I think when it comes to representations, both fictional and non-fictional, there's definitely work to be done. We can be more sensitive, understanding, thoughtful. I suppose, not that I suppose. I think we should <laughs> when it comes yeah. to when it comes to depicting authors' lives. Definitely. <laughs> Just finally, we we've mentioned a couple of times. Um, Plath's reading voice mm-hmm. and I'd said I'd, I'd, I've always found it quite surprising unlike Ted Hughes who always sounds exactly like ha- how I expect <laughs> him to in ac- accent and delivery and everything yeah um, I'm quite interested by the fact that Plath writes about Hughes just having a natural voice just like it was just a gift mm-hmm. um, born to read poems you get the impression whereas she really um, worked on her um delivery mm-hmm. what, what do we know about what she wanted her poems to sound like when she read them well I think with with Plath you know she would she always went to hear other poets speak um so you've got the likes of it's not H. is it H.G. Wells no hang on I'm gonna get this H. right G. I think H.G. Wells is too old H.G. Wells H.G. Wells is too old it's it's another um it's another writer who who's she she must she missed Dylan Thomas as well, didn't she? Yes. Um W. H. Jordan. She saw him speak at Smith. Not H. G. Wells. <laughs> and on top of that, as well as you say, she missed Dylan Thomas when she was um with Mademoiselle magazine, but she interviewed Elizabeth Bowen, which I think is quite ah. significant. Um there's pictures of her from that time actually interviewing Elizabeth Bowen in uh, oh, wow. New York. And more often than not, if you think about the circles, she's in um 
performance of poetry at that time, I suppose, is undergoing a bit of a transformation. If you think about it, um, also at the time and what Gail Coder writes, writes about in Free Martini Afternoons at the Ritz, how, you know, Plath is going to Robert Lowell's classes with Anne mm. Sexton and reading out her poetry in, in a classroom space. And uh, that is quite different when you think about the time that she's in. It's definitely a transitional period when it comes to poetry so we've got mm. the rise of confessional poetry and also if we think about it how Anne Sexton later in the 70s goes on to actually having her own band that she almost sings her poetry to it's quite interesting because I think with Plath there's definitely particularly in England an awareness that she is American um I, I remember reading one of her associates in Cambridge said you know that Plath, whenever she first came to Cambridge, they were out somewhere and looking for a place to eat. And Plath just walked up to a policeman and asked him in her mid-transatlantic accent where, you know, where was where would be the best restaurant to go to? And I think, <laughs> and I think for for her, especially being in an environment like Cambridge, there was probably a hyper-awareness of how she came across. And I think mm. sometimes that's reflected in her poetry. Um it can be instances of expression, but you have to watch out for them. They're they're not they're not obvious. I think for me, she comes to life the most in her interviews. So there's one with Peter Orr in 1962 with the BBC, and her laugh is recorded, at, and it's it's just wonderful. You can mm. just hear the, the it's almost like champagne bubbles it fizzes <laughs> with humor and life and to me it's just wonderful also as well when it comes to the recording of Plath's voice it's quite hard to get your hands on copies of it so for example the British Library did one in the early 2000s but one of my most treasured uh, articles along with my 1965 copy of the Bell Jar is mm. um, the first ever vinyl of entitled Sylvia Plath reads her poetry oh wow it's one of it's it was the first vinyl that was ever mass produced for a wide audience, but I have that in my in my collection and listening to the weirdly enough, the first time I put it on the record player, the first poem that came through was a birthday present. Really? Yeah. Gosh. Which was just magical. I I, I I was almost hypnotized when I heard it. I just remember slowly sitting down on the floor and just listening to her voice boom out <laughs> across the living room. It, it was it was really, really magical as an experience to hear it. Not just say on a computer or through my headphones, like it's almost there in the room. Some of her recordings that she did when she was in America, um, particularly, um, I think it's uh, Tulips. Um, I quite enjoy because you can actually hear if you listen closely enough the little background noises of like people coughing or scraping their chairs and that to me <laughs> I suppose just makes it all the more human like oh yes she was actually there she existed and although we can only hear her voice you can almost I think at some times just imagine her there standing at a lectern just reading and that to me is quite magical I think for for me, the, the voice makes it all the more real. You know, I, I never forget the first time I heard her reading her poem because my English teacher brought it up on YouTube and I can remember hearing it and thinking, oh my God, like this, this was real. This, th this happened. This is, this is her voice. And it's, yeah, 
I never cease to fall in love with it every time I hear it. It doesn't matter where or when. There's like, you know, even on Spotify, you know, if you put my Spotify on shuffle, not only will you get an awful lot of hosier, but you will also get, you know, <laughs> Sylvia Plath reading Point Shirley. And even anytime I hear that, I'm still like, oh, this is wonderful. So yeah. To hear her have an audience as well. That's, yeah, that's really, it's really, really that wonderful. to me, whenever I caught that in Tulips, I was like, yeah, someone is definitely coughing in the back of this hall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really really wonderful even if it was even if it's annoying <laughs> and that's all we have time for i'm afraid a huge thank you once again to my special guest ailish mulholland you can find a link to her podcast plath and co in the episode description box below as well as links to all of our socials and our patreon page thank you all for listening and until next time happy reading <laughs>